Hello and welcome to the In Publishing podcast, bringing you weekly insights into the newspaper and magazine publishing sector. I'm Kia Byrne and this week my guest is Sam Kinchin-Smith, Head of Special Projects at the London Review of Books. We would like to thank our podcast sponsor, Acorn Web Offset, the Yorkshire-based specialist A5 and A4 magazine printer. With high-speed web offset and sheet-fed printing, together with in-house saddle stitching, perfect binding and mailing services, Acorn can cope with the most demanding of production turnarounds. Acorn prides itself on its efficiency and low-cost print production. For more information, visit acornweb.co.uk. Sam Kinchin-Smith is the Head of Special Projects at the London Review of Books, and before that he was digital editor of the magazine. He's also an author himself, whose projects include a history of the LRB and a monograph on Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes. Sam, welcome to the In Publishing podcast. Thanks, Kia. Can you begin by telling us a bit about your career before joining the LRB? Yeah, sure. Um, I sort of always wanted to be a journalist. Um, and uh, did a, a long internship at the New Statesman while I was doing uh, my master's at university, but then um, found it quite difficult to to break in, I guess, um, as lots of people do. And so um, I instead went into kind of different kinds of editorial jobs um, for quite a long time. Uh, I worked in academic publishing first um, as an editorial assistant on Routledge's um, theatre and performance list. Um, and then as a digital project manager there. And then um, I took a job at English Heritage, which was um, working on a big uh, a big website project that, that um, sought to describe the entire history of England in about 200 web pages. Um, so that was a kind of big uh, web publishing project. Um, and I guess I sort of accidentally became interested and um, got some expertise uh, digitally in the way that I think lots of people um, of my generation, um, I'm 32, uh, did because of the way that the industry was going at that point in time. Um, and so I sort of combined these uh, these sort of slightly unusual editorial jobs um, with a kind of growing degree of digital expertise and a, a kind of parallel career as a freelance culture and travel writer. Um, and then I went fully freelance for a bit. And then I guess I was very lucky in that the magazine that I um, had sort of subscribed to for longest just happened to be looking for precisely the kind of editor that I had managed to make myself, as I say, somewhat by accident. So the LRB um, was seeking a digital editor for the first time. And um, it was a magazine that I'd been reading and subscribing to for many years. And so um, I was very lucky to sort of enter the the career that I'd always wanted to, but just at a slightly later stage through this slightly roundabout route. But I guess it's sort of both a coincidence and not that those um, kind of poles came together. So you joined the LRB as digital editor and more recently you've moved over to special projects. But if I can just talk about your digital editor role to begin with, um, You've described the London Review of Books as quite undigital. What did you mean by that? Well, um, it's hard to imagine um, the LRB not remaining a print-first organisation, um, even if things had gone the way that people thought 
they might have done um, sort of 10 years ago, the the central proposition of the LRB uh, has always been, and one imagines will always be, um, a print magazine containing long articles of a kind that really are nicer to read in print. Um, and so when you have a kind of uh, central entity in an organization, the, 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 the main thing the publication is, 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 is print first. It means that um, the way that digital works in that organization is a bit different to, uh, to how digital transformation in other magazines, um, particularly in the noughties, uh, went and, and newspapers similarly. Um, the centrality of the kind of print newspaper is very different to, to how we think about things. Um, and so I guess there's sort of two ways to, uh, to, to answer the question of how one can be a successful digital editor in a, in a magazine that, um, that has a, a print emphasis. One is to be extremely, uh, sort of sensitive to that and ensure that, um, that everything that the magazine does digitally cleaves as closely as possible to, the um the kind of emphases and the principles of the of the print publication um and so that can be both in terms of design but also in terms of um the general kind of ambition and and classiness of the publication um there's also the question of of just getting a sample of the magazine um in front of as many potential readers as possible and obviously that's the thing that digital is um uniquely able to do and so we have you know a an email newsletter list of 200,000. We have 300,000 Twitter followers and 350,000 uh, Facebook followers and uh, actually I think 500,000 Facebook followers um, and a growing Instagram presence. And so through digital, you basically take something that your print publication uh, does that is most suitable for that digital audience and you use digital to provide a kind of sample of the publication that then might mean that they um, decide to subscribe because they they come at it through the the kind of platform that they're most comfortable with. Um, having said that, there is uh, you know a, a sizable online readership for um, long form articles, and and we very much encourage that. And so it's also about delivering the best possible um, reading and and uh, consuming experience for for digital readers. But then the other thing is that the LRB is is sort of more than just a publication. Um, it's, you know, we have a, a bookshop and a cafe. Yeah. Um, but we also, you know, have events programs. We have a podcast. We have videos, uh, like a lot of publications in that respect. And so obviously having a print magazine at the center doesn't mean that you can do lots of interesting things in digital kind of orbiting that kind of central magazine. Right, right. And you've already touched on this, but when you came in uh, as the first digital editor, you wanted to reinvigorate the LRB's digital offering. How did you set about doing that? I mean, I think the 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 danger of, of reinvigorate suggests that you want to sort of um, dramatically change things. Whereas actually, I think the thing that the LRB is and the reason why people value it so much is because um, everything in it tries to be and often succeeds in being sort of the very best in terms of the writing, the editing, the typography, um, the design in a certain kind of a way. Um, and so what I was interested in is, is whether you could sort of take that um, level of precision and ambition and apply it to all of the um, different kind of 
ways that one does digital. So you reinvigorate newsletters first, say, and then you find a way of doing Instagram, which for a, a publication that is um, very unillustrated um, presented certain challenges. And then you find a way of, say, live streaming events um, and doing as good a job of that as the as the bookshop events program um, had already been doing. And then you uh, start, you, you sort of build a, a sort of strong platform of um of doing things well and then from that you can build on that with slightly more um original ideas so you touched on social and i wondered how important it is to you as a publisher um and in particular you mentioned instagram and how you have managed to use instagram um as a, a publication which is not image heavy yeah so um when i started at the lrb um i focused quite heavily on digital because um because essentially it was a kind of low-hanging fruit it was the 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 period um where for example if you um posted 10 times a day on facebook you could um get hundreds of clicks from each one of those posts and so it was it was an area of kind of um of easy innovation and best practice that would produce immediate results in terms of um, increasing the traffic that we were getting from these platforms that we'd managed to accrue a kind of large um, audience on before um, before I'd started, but that we hadn't gone about systematically figuring out the best way of publishing on them. Um, but then about a year and a half uh, into my time at the LRB, as happened to a lot of publications and organizations, the Facebook algorithm changed and I think to a lesser extent the Twitter algorithm changed um, and so the extent to which um, these uh, platforms produced a sort of huge amount of traffic um, for publications with very little effort um, changed quite significantly um, and we uh, I mean fortunately we were we were less invested in these um, these kind of platforms than other publishers and so it wasn't like it became an existential threat but it it did mean that we had to kind of take a step back from um from the sort of approach to social that was just like the more you put into it the more you get out and actually start thinking about what the best things that we could use these platforms for were and a a sort of a couple of examples of that one would be that we became interested in using Facebook Live, as a lot of publications did. Um, this is something we do a bit less of now, but it was a very good way of of kind of getting into the the event live streaming game, which obviously has become hugely significant um, in the kind of pandemic period um, at quite an early stage uh, without having too much kind of investment in technology being required. Um, but also, as you say, a platform like Instagram, which we um, which I started our Instagram channel, it was sort of it poses a really interesting question of a of a very word based um unillustrated publication which is like how do you uh you present the lrb in a form that um is appealing to an instagram audience and and ultimately use it to find a new readership um this is something that the other publications had figured out how to do and that to some extent we copied them but we we put our own spin on it which was um to to actually do word posts so you 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 present for example a a short pull quote a single sentence a couple of sentences that um successfully convey the the sort of spirit and tone of an article um and you uh you just post that in a kind of elegant way um as a sort of provocation um you can also post sort of whole poems which is something another publication called the paris review does very nicely um and in and in doing that, we found certain principles of how you can 
convey the kind of emphasis and tone of an article quickly um, that we could then apply to other uh, things that we did online. So I think by having a very um, platform-specific sort of investigative and and, um, exploratory process, um, you end up having lots of ideas for how the central thing that you do can be kind of communicated and repackaged in different and interesting ways. Right, right. Um, And at the end of last year, your new website went live. Why did that website need relaunching? And what were your guiding principles in the relaunch? Well, it it needed relaunching, um, although inevitably many of our readers thought it it didn't need relaunching and, and made that clear when we relaunched it. But I think that happens to every publication and other organization that creates a new website. Um, yes. It was 10 years old uh, and um, it looked it uh, and it was built on, um, I wouldn't say sand, but um, it wasn't built on a particularly robust um, back end kind of platform. Um, the CMS situation was uh, was not good at all. And so there was a significant kind of front end refresh and a significant bit of um back end sort of um rebuilding for the for the next 10 years that needed to be done um i guess the principles behind it editorially speaking were were quite simple as a lot of what the lrb does is um essentially it's about presenting articles as elegantly as possible to to cleave, as I said before, as closely as possible to the to the print reading experience um, online, and to, to sort of actively incentivize people to keep reading online, and then it's about repackaging um, the uh, sort of existing issues uh, and um, archive pieces in such a way that it draws people into um, into those two. I mean, the the amazing thing about working with the LRB, and I, I think we'll probably return to this, is that. Um, perhaps uniquely as a publication, almost every article in its archive is almost as interesting and valuable 10 years after publication as it is when it's published. And so the question of how you present a kind of parallel digital publication that's formed of both what's in the present issue, but it's also um, in the archive is a constant curatorial and editorial challenge. And, and so a big driver of how we how we kind of put together the website um, was in encouraging that use of it. One example of that would be that we we sort of put together a very elegant collections format so that you can basically make the single most dominant thing on the homepage a collection of articles that aren't just the articles that have been most recently published. The, right. the other thing is to bring in um, these these sort of other things that the LRB does um, and and sort of present a way of moving between them um, more fluidly um, and and you know creating connections between them. So um, that could be both our own podcast and the podcast that we partner with, Talking Politics. That can be the video program and also the event live streaming program. Um, information about the bookshop um, and the cafe, and then you know we launched a, a store to sell our own books and merchandise, and so um, it became about creating a kind of hub for the wider LRB as well as just a, a digital reading experience for the London Review of Books. Yes, well, I was going to ask you. You work across different departments. You're, you cross editorial, marketing, and tech. How important is that cross departmental innovation? Really important, um, absolutely essential, and I think that. Um, that 
sort of is the story of how um how digital has has changed uh publications potentially even more than um than the actual sort of ways in which publishing has changed um in terms of people reading online or whatever i think i think that a lot of publications um appointed a digital editor or other digital people thinking that what they needed was someone to just um transform what they did for uh, a kind of new completely different audience um and ultimately transform the publication in in ways that would secure its future whereas actually i think a a, a thing that digital has to do because of um the way that it sort of uh, moves between these departments is create more of a culture of uh, prioritization, innovation, um, and and sort of figuring out how these things combine in a way that publications often haven't asked of themselves. Um, and so, you know, putting together a website is about boiling an organization down to its kind of key uh, priorities and emphases. Um, and that's that's sort of true of everything that you do digitally. So, um, I guess that was sort of how my role expanded. It was that in moving between um, these departments for digital ends, because of the fact that, for example, you want to create a editorial product that drives subscriptions, to take one very simple example. Um, it also pointed to, to other ways that um, the LRB and I imagine other publications too needed to sort of talk interdepartmentally um, to to figure out ways that they could do things better well we'll come on to that but just just sticking for a moment with the website um in april it saw its highest traffic since december 2015 um i'm not sure what was happening in december 2015 in a minute and and your subscriptions rose by 70 percent year on year is the london review of books the perfect publication for these pandemic times um well we'd like to think so i mean I think the, there's there's a few things that that um, have made this a time that lots of people have become interested in reading the LRB. Um, obviously, people have longer to read, and so they have longer to read longer articles. Um, and I think the other key kind of dimension is that the LRB, because of the way that it's kind of been constructed as a publication from the outset since the you know, very first issues in 1979, it's been based upon um, offering book reviews alongside kind of political and cultural comment. And so um, the LRB has always been set up to to um, publish pieces about, you know, epidemiology or um, global economics um, in a way that goes beyond what you'd expect for a, a kind of literary publication. But the other thing is that the LRB has a um, a huge resource of um, very, very immersive articles that aren't about what's happening right now. Um, and certainly this is something that we've lent into quite a lot. Um, and I know other publications have too, which is, uh, which is sort of finding publishing that, um, that can basically offer a kind of anti-pandemic experience um, and, and giving people that every day if that's what they want. And so the fact that we're able to sort of offer that alongside um, trying to trying to publish, you know, the article by Adam Tooze about um, about the economics of the crisis, or or the article by uh, Rupert Beale about the science. We could also um, find short stories and investigative pieces and and literary pieces from um, every decade of our publication that we could sort of 
distract people with and people seem to have really found distraction in that i mean it's been the last three months have all been um highest traffic since december 2015 the particular thing that happened in december. What, what happened then <laughs> it was we, we we published some articles by the investigative journalist seymour hirsch um that resulted okay. in traffic spikes of a kind that um the publication had never seen before so so actually we're talking about kind of the best steady traffic really ever perhaps for the LRB website um, and and it's just those kind of exceptions that mean that it hasn't actually been fully record-breaking. And as you mentioned one of your recent uh, projects was Diverted Traffic which was a Covid-free newsletter can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah absolutely that um, I mean I think the, the thing to think about that as is a really really simple idea that it turns out um, works very well which is that I mean it, it's 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 just one article a day that's sent in a newsletter and the article is depaywalled for 24 hours. Um, but a lot of work, a lot of my work goes into choosing the right sorts of articles, both in terms of the kind of spread of genres and um, and generations of LRB publishing and writers. And only um, each writer can only have one entry in the series. So um, we're, I think we're up to 73 or something now and, um, beginning to run out of of the obvious writers, but obviously not writers full stop. Um, but the 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 thing that has been really conspicuous is that lots of people have sent an email being like, "This is exactly what I want the LRB to be. I want it to deliver one article to me per day that I can read, kind of almost regardless of whether I have a subscription or not." Um, a lot of people have been uh, have been most grateful for it have been subscribers and haven't considered not subscribing because these articles are depaywalled. Um right. and so it's just it's a way of packaging um kind of content that turns out to be extremely attractive, much more attractive actually than than say sending people six articles from the archive. And obviously finding something, you know, I read all of these articles before we send them and 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 really make sure that they have no reference to quarantine or plague or or um right. kind of mass death um and it's uh and and so the it turns out that in certain moments you can um you can sort of really double down on responding to that moment in a kind of unusual and and surprising way and has that worked at all in terms of acting as a taster for people to to take up a subscription and and come behind your paywall? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, it, it's it's sort of hard to talk about this because um, because obviously it's a it's a kind of catastrophe of of appalling proportions, um, and and so to say um, that you know the pandemic and COVID has been good for the LRB is sort of a peculiar thing to say, but sure, but yeah. the fact is that um, we've had you know, four years of subscriber growth in three months. Um, right. And we've had uh, the best traffic figures, you know, we've maybe ever had. And so, um, you know, a publication has to respond to um, and, and lean into the ways that, that people seem to be reading it. And, and this does seem to be a moment just as uh, Brexit and, and Trump were for, you know, the New York Times and the New Yorker say, um, it seems to be a moment when we uh, we need to to keep doing what we're doing because it's working. Whether people are reading diverted traffic pieces and 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 then ultimately subscribing, it's sort of I'm, I'm slightly suspicious of thinking about ideas in that way. Thinking about 
yeah. uh, ideas as things that immediately result in someone subscribing. I think it's it's better to think of a kind of suite of activities that seem to be resulting in in a, a level of growth that we've we've sort of never seen before. Okay, um, can I move on to asking about the US, which um, I think is a growth market for the London Review of Books. And last year, you held a multidisciplinary event series in New York called Against the Grain. Can you tell us a bit more about that and, and what you see as the growth potential in the US? Yeah, well, I mean, the growth potential in the US is huge because it's an absolutely massive English speaking country. So, I mean, it's uh the the equivalent magazines to the LRB um, in the US, the New York Review of Books, Harper's, Paris Review, etc. Um, they they have well certainly the first two have more subscribers than we do, um, and are able to find almost that entire subscriber base just in you know say the East Coast. Um, and so if you're a publication looking to to expand from being a sort of small magazine to being a, a sort of big cultural player then finding a large audience in the us um is something that you have to do and we have found that and 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 you know the us is getting on now for for half of our subscriber base um but the thing is that we're a kind of cult proposition um in the us i've I've spent a lot of time over there interviewing subscribers um just kind of trying to get a hold of why they subscribe to the lrb uh, as opposed to an uh, american publication and it's it's a sort of combination of anglophilia um and and also a sense that you know it's a kind of double snobbery you don't just subscribe to the new york review of books you subscribe to the london review of books because it sort of has additional cachet it'd be like someone trumping uh an english reader of the london review of books by saying actually they they read the new york review of books so i think it probably goes both ways um yeah and so what the events program and other activities is about is basically about working with um with large U.S. institutions. Uh, we we did events at New York Public Library. Um, we done this series against the grain at, at a music venue called National Sawdust. It's about basically working with those publications to amplify um, our brand um, through really interesting collaborations, in order to to basically underpin that that kind of uh, cult presence into something that that becomes more of a kind of comparative player. Um, we also have, you know, many writers and uh, from the US and articles about the US. So it's also just about um, emphasizing that to people. Right. Um, and it, I think it was last November that you, the LRB celebrated its 40th anniversary with a series of events, um, which was underpinned by your digital offering. And off the back of that, you became head of special projects. Can you tell us a bit more about that? how that arose and what it means are you the first head of special projects yeah so i mean the i guess the way to think about the 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 anniversary was um it was a it was a sort of range of different things we we published this book with faber we we had this series of events we relaunched our website um it was an opportunity to i suppose pull together everything that um that had been happening around the publication into into a really kind of exciting multidisciplinary celebration um and you know for example we we had an event with our partner podcast talking politics we brought against the grain over to the south bank center and and had its kind of uk debut here we had an event to launch the the faber book um and we you know published all of these events as podcasts and um and then launched a website that um that was a 
way to navigate between these different areas of of kind of publishing activity better than ever before. Um, but essentially, this this had sort of all come together through a certain amount of of improvisation um, and and quite kind of specific focus on different things. And and then it's you know you sort of look around and you're like, oh my god, we've accidentally become a kind of podcast publisher and a book publisher and a, an events producer and a, a kind of cultural producer of, of, of cultural partnerships and um, collaborations. And so the special projects department, which hadn't existed before, um, is is an attempt um, by the organization and, and by me within the organization to, to create the kind of um, team and systems that mean that uh, this work isn't just a kind of flurry of of chaotic um, improvisation in advance of a big birthday party. It's a, it, it's a sustainable um, and coherent and and kind of targeted set of activities based upon um, the LRB existing as an, an institution as well as a publication. Right, and and one of the innovations which you've introduced recently is. Um, linked to your bookshop it's these curated book boxes um which are themed around topics such as food sex gardening witches and most recently i think london can you tell us a bit more about those no, it's actually, uh, there's a couple of projects there one one is the book boxes um which right. is uh which is a, a project that um that i haven't really been so much involved in it's very much um come out of our sort of marketing teams and, and the bookshop but it's that's very much i mean the the emphasis on that has been um that it's obviously a it's something that we started doing that people seem to like and then it became um something that people really liked during uh, a time that they were stuck at home because they could basically you know join this kind of book club um that would mean that they could be sent either a monthly book or books around a particular area um at a time that they could read more than ever the food sex and witches thing is um these are actually these are books of uh anthologies of, of pieces that i've been working on right the, the LRB okay collection series yep. um and i guess the thing i'd say about that is that it's a very um the 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 way that i sort of found that you can take what essentially you know to most people's eyes would seem to be just old stuff that isn't of very much interest but then if you can gather these kind of pieces together um around a, what seems like a kind of provocative um overarching topic those um i think are pretty much the three best-selling ones um i think food just about outstrips sex which is interesting um but it means that you, you just take t- 10 articles um and and publish them in a kind of beautiful little book um and suddenly there's a the kind of new appetite for for both reading them individually and also seeing the way that um, these ideas have sort of developed and um, and and the kind of debate around them has changed uh, over forty years. And was um, I know that you recently published with Fourth Estate Mantel Pieces, which was um, a book showcasing the best of Hilary Mantel's writing for the LRB over the years. Um, it, was that part of the same? project part of the same spirit so mantel pieces Mm. comes out on the 1st of october and um right that is uh that's a kind of slightly different strand which is about collecting um the work of uh particular writers um as opposed to work by writers around a particular theme um obviously you know we're very proud to have published um hilary mantel's writing 
since the late 80s. Um, and Hilary Mantel's writing for the LRB since the late 80s has been extraordinary. Um, and so that is a particularly exciting uh, kind of collection of pieces by a particular author um, that we're working with another publisher on and, and that sort of has the potential to be a, a kind of different scale because of the um, huge following that Harry Mantel has and, and interest in the fact that she was writing pieces for us about sort of Madonna and John Osborne and uh, the Salman Rushdie affair in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, the other really exciting thing about that project is that it sort of builds on some work that I was doing for the history of the LRB, which is using the uh, archive um, not the archive of pieces, but the archive of, of kind of letters, correspondence, um, files and and manuscripts pertaining to previous issues that we store at the Harry Ransom Centre in Texas. Um, right. And so sort of in counterpoint to the 20 pieces of Hillary's that we're publishing, we're also publishing for the first time letters between mainly Mary Kay Wilmers, the editor of the LRB, and Hillary um, about her pieces about life, about novels and how they interact with the pieces, um, which is a kind of amazing insight into what this body of work, you know, how it was made and 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 why it's um, interesting and important. Um, and so it's a sort of, it, it it seems to me that another way into thinking about the history of magazines is, is actually seeing, for example, how a piece is edited and and why a piece was commissioned. And, um, and obviously, through Hilary Mantel is a way of showing to people quite how interesting that is. Oh, it sounds fascinating. I'll, I would love to read that. Um, and, and from that, are there lessons that you can pass on to other publishers about how to monetize your archive? Yeah, I mean, I, as I say, I think the LRB is in quite a unique position because of the fact that it tries not to be too reactive. Um, and it works very hard on editing pieces until they're the very, the very best um, version of themselves. Um, and so the kind of evergreen quality of its archive is, is, um, is if not unique, then, then quite rare. But there will certainly be um, kind of content of enormous value in every publication's archive. Um, and, and it's just about, I think, somebody maybe somebody new to the organization as I was um going into it being given the time to go into it and then you know finding the fact that there are really really interesting pieces about witches that have been written at various points in the history of the publication and and there happens to be a moment that people seem to be interested in witches and so perhaps you can gather this I mean you know newspapers do this by showing front pages from important historical moments and and have found ways of uh, of of kind of um reflecting history at different times but i i do think that every publication has the opportunity to be a a, a kind of archive publication in parallel to to constantly churning out new material and and that um there is huge opportunity to to find and generate value there that um that people aren't working on nearly hard enough great um, in this September, you're you're running a 12-hour live stream digital festival. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Uh, yeah, that that um, it, we're we're sort of the partner on that, um, and okay. it's a uh, it's a partnership with the the brilliant um, cultural producers Art Angel uh, called the the Long Player Assembly. Um, okay. But basically, it's a sort of 12 12-hour 12 conversational relay in which 
um, one very interesting person speaks to uh, someone for half an hour and then they speak to someone else and then they speak to someone else and then the last person speaks to the first person for half an hour. Um, so it's kind of uninterrupted uh, 12 hour conversation between um, what we in Artangel consider to be uh, 24 of the most kind of interesting um, thinkers and writers and, and uh intellectuals and artists in the world at the moment um the thing that really appealed to me about it is and, and when they approached us about working with us that that to me made it seem like something we should definitely do is that i'm i think length is really interesting and i think that um that the fact that we're a publication that's associated with articles that sometimes take more than an hour to read um is is a sort of texture and uh and uh an energy that um that is interesting in other formats as well and so to work with uh someone as as brilliant as Artangel on a really 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 long event um is quite appealing in that respect well it sounds very interesting um so post covid um we're we're now coming out of lockdown hopefully what do you see as the challenges and opportunities for the LRB and what plans do you have in the pipeline so I think that um, a, a big thing is just about consolidating um, the growth. I mean, it's a nice problem to have, but but if you've suddenly had four years of growth, um, you've you've got to think about how this large new potential audience of readers can be um, can be sort of kept invested in a publication, even if the world changes. So that's I think hugely important. Um, as is, of course, continuing to to kind of meet the demands of the moment. Um, there are other kind of dimensions. We we have a bookshop, and and so that presents um, huge challenges as a retail space in the kind of era of social distancing. Um, and so there's the question of how you, uh, for example, supplement your on the ground business with a digital business um, of bookselling in order to uh, ensure that the bookshop can continue to do. I think it does amazingly well, which is um, guide readers to books that they wouldn't have otherwise found, um, even if they can't do it in person. But the other thing that um, that I'm interested in at the moment is that I think there is a really dangerous um, kind of moment for culture at this point because of the the way that, um, for example, theatres and concert halls um, can't, yeah. you know, have an audience um, potentially until the new year and um, there's going to be a huge number of creatives who are going to lose their jobs. And um, I think it's a huge challenge and and um, a, a, a massive question for a, for a cultural organisation that has done relatively well in this situation that, that has the potential to be a, a real crisis for, for our, our kind of colleagues um, to think about how we can help really um, and how we can uh, potentially uh, support and, and work with um other cultural organisations um, and, and contribute what we're able to contribute in terms of sort of knowledge and an audience um, to, to ensure that this moment in which it sort of feels like both huge parts of culture are, are in dire straits and that the government potentially actually wants them to fail, um, that, that we do everything that we can to, to kind of act as a, as a, a bullock against that kind of anti-Philistinism. Sure, sure. Well, um, we've come to the end of the interview. So as as our final question, I wanted to ask you, uh, what was the last book you really enjoyed and why? Um, well, I spent I spent lockdown in uh, in the Kent coast 
town of Ramsgate. Um, and uh, there's the sort of most famous building in Ramsgate was built by the architect, uh, the architect Augustus Pugin, who uh, designed Big Ben and many other churches and Victorian buildings. Um, and so I read my my colleague Rosemary Hill's um, biography of of him. Um, and uh, like you do a lot when you read about Victorians, found myself kind of amazed that this kind of guy who I'd always assumed was a sort of fusty and um, sort of antiquated figure um, actually had this completely extraordinary life where he had sort of three wives and died at the age of 40 despite having produced all this amazing work and um, so so that was a that was a lockdown discovery that I could read in context. Sam Kinchin-Smith thank you very much for being our guest on the In Publishing podcast today. My pleasure Kia thanks. A big thank you again to Acorn Web Offset for sponsoring this podcast. If you're looking for a new magazine printer, then check out their website at acornweb.co.uk or contact Matt Carey on 07714 299 105 or by email at matthew.carry at acornweb.co.uk. Thank you to Sam for being our guest this week. You can find out more about the London Review of Books at lrb.co.uk and their Twitter handle is at LRB. If you would like to know more about In Publishing, then check out our website, inpublishing.co.uk, where you can also register to receive our magazine and newsletter. We're taking a short break in August, but we'll be back at the beginning of September. Thank you for listening. And please join me in a few weeks' time for our next In Publishing podcast.